John Martinez uh, is uh, one of my ministry heroes. And um, for nearly 20 years, I have uh, been privileged to witness uh, his servant leadership at Go Ministries. Uh, John uh, and Pastor Moise that you saw. Uh, and uh, he's going to hold you down underneath that water a little longer if you let him baptize you. So anyway, just note to self. But uh, <laughs> John, uh, John leads a hardworking, humble, passionate ministry. And John is a hardworking, humble, passionate servant leader. And because of God's strength and wisdom through John... The ministry he leads is united in Christ, united in Christ. And um, what we learn is that unity does not occur automatically. Unity requires intentionality. When you drive your vehicle, what happens when you take the hands off the wheel? You drift. And people don't drift into unity. Being and staying united in Christ requires effort and focus and discipline. Good leadership facilitates this. And that leads us to our passage of Scripture today. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to meet me in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 23. If you're new here at Windsor Road, either in person or online, we are walking through a series of messages through Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. And the theme is united in Christ. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in order to unify a divided church. The Christians in Corinth were segregating around various uh, leaders. And some of them, they, you know, they had proclaimed their favorites with slogans like, well, I'm of Paul. Oh, no, I'm of Apollos. Well, I'm in uh, the Cephas or the Peter group. Cephas means Peter. Well, why would they do this? Well, because Celebrity worship was part of secular Corinthian culture, and that had leaked into the church, causing a divisive drift. And so leadership was required to correct the drift. And so that's really what we're focusing on here in chapter 3. Chapter 3 is a leadership chapter, and... Paul has words to the congregation, those who are led, and he also has words to those who are leading in the congregation. He has words to both, and we're going to hear what he has to say as I read these verses in 5 through 23. As I read these verses, I want you to listen for themes, three themes, identity, quality, security. Identity, quality, and security. Listen for these themes as I read 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 23. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? 
servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This is the word of the Lord. Now, when we study a passage of Scripture, it's helpful to assume that these verses are answering some question. So, what question are these verses answering? And I would propose the question is this. What kind of leadership keeps a congregation united in Christ? So, how ought Randy and the elders and the church staff... How ought we lead to keep us together in Christ? And the answer, which is the big idea of these verses, is this. God wants our leadership to pay attention to identity, quality, and security. God wants our leadership to pay attention to identity, quality, and security. That's what we learn as we look at these verses. So let's just walk through this passage here as we consider first the identity of church leadership. That's verses 5 through 9. 
then the quality of church ministry, that's verses 10 through 17, and then the security in our Lord Jesus Christ, that's verses 18 to 23. First, the identity of church leadership. You can see that in verse 5. Paul writes, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believe as the Lord assigned to each. So, so Paul is saying, what is this I am of Paul talk? <laughs> like what? Like I'm your personal guru? Stop saying that. No, verse 5 does not say who, but what. Did you get that? In other words, the grammatical gender is neither masculine nor feminine, but neuter. So Paul and Apollos are identifying as tools, implements of the Almighty. Paul says, you think that we're celebrity speakers. We're not. We're farm equipment. Verse 5 says, we're servants. That's the word for deacon, diakonos, through the dirt. Not in whom you believed, as if we are the objects of your faith, uh, nor are we servants from whom you believed, as if we are the origin or source of your faith. What's verse 5 say? We are servants through whom you came to faith. So we're not the source of the water. We're the canal. And, and yes, yes, each of us plays a part. That's what's behind verse 6. Paul says, I planted, meaning he first came to Corinth to establish the congregation. Apollos watered, meaning Apollos came and taught and strengthened and hydrated the church with the living water of the word. But who gives the growth? God gave the growth. Farmers then and now know their limits. After planting and cultivating and fertilizing and even watering, the miracle of growth belongs to God. Verse 7, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Only God who gives the growth. So Paul is saying, why are you fussing over the farmhands? Okay, pray for them. Encourage them, but don't rate them or rank them as your personally preferred pastor because that's not how they see themselves. Verse 8, he who plants and he who waters are one. So Paul says, look, Apollos and I, we're not the ones who are divided. The church is divided because you're trying to segregate into your favorite little pastor groups. No way. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his, his labor. We, Paul says, we are God's fellow workers. Meaning, Apollos and I, we're, we're co-laborers. John Martinez and I, we're co-laborers. And we both serve God. We belong to God. He is the owner of the field. He's the owner of the farm. We're the farmhands. Now, here's the takeaway from verses 5 through 9. The takeaway is this. Good leaders know their place. Good leaders know their place. That they are servants of the king, but they're not the king. Paul and Apollos, they're not the gospel. They're not the Holy Spirit. 
They're not the source of power. They're not God. And likewise, in case anybody's wondering, I, our elders, the church staff, we're not the gospel. We're not God. We're not the king. We're servants. Diakonos. The word means table waiter. (laughs) I'm your table waiter. I'm not the most important person in this church. I'm not the head of the table. I don't own the restaurant. My job is to serve the meal. Hello, I'm Randall. I'll be your server today. Our special today is a rich, savory selection of gospel truth from 1 Corinthians 3. (laughs) It's... It's so easy to forget your place. It's so, easy, it's so easy for me to forget my place. Paul David Tripp is an author and pastor. He calls it identity amnesia. Identity amnesia. He writes, it's so easy to confuse your kingdom with the Lord's. It's so easy to tell yourself that you're fighting for the gospel and what you're really fighting for is your place. It's so easy to tell yourself that you're simply trying to be a good leader when what you really want is control. It's so easy to tell yourself that you just want what is best when what you really want is comfortable, predictable ministry life. It's so easy to tell yourself that what you want is for God to get the glory when really you enjoy ministry celebrity more than you're willing to admit. (laughs) The temptation of the Garden of Eden still lives in places, well, like the pulpit, the temptation of Eden. You will be like God. And here's the deal. God will never, ever abandon His kingdom for yours or mine. He will will never abdicate His royal throne for my puny kingdom of one. His kingdom and His power and His glory are our only hope. And when I forget my place and quest in some way for God's place, I put myself and the congregation in danger. So here are some questions to reflect on in this first section. Would the people who serve with you think that you're too oriented to power and control? Would they say that you care too much about attention and influence and self-expression? Would they characterize you as a humble servant leader? Would they say that you understand verse 9? For we are God's fellow workers... You are God's field, God's building. Identity. Identity. Well, how do we ensure identity awareness so that we can avoid identity amnesia? That takes us to our next section. Because identity awareness is ensured by quality assurance. So let's talk about the quality of church ministry. Paul, who 
planted gospel seed is now Paul, the skilled contractor. So can you hear the segue from farmland to building? He changes word pictures here. Paul came to Corinth as a skilled master builder, a contractor, who laid the foundation, verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. What's the foundation? Look at verse 11. The foundation is Jesus Christ. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Christ. So here you have the foundation of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Question, what building materials are best compatible to such a foundation as Jesus Christ? So what quality of superstructure best belongs on the substructure of Jesus Christ? Pastors, Paul's talking to pastors here. Randy, what quality of church are you constructing on the cornerstone of Christ? And does the superstructure fit the foundation? Well, verse 12, Paul distinguishes two types of superstructure. Imperishable, that's what's behind gold, silver, precious stones. Imperishable. Versus perishable, wood, hay, stubble. And Paul says, be choosy about the quality of your building materials. Because one day your work will be inspected, tested. One day, called the day, King Jesus will appear and he will make an imperial visit, and every eye will see him. Just because you can't see him now doesn't mean he's not in charge. He who rules heaven and earth now will one day, called the day, appear, and on that day he will renovate and restore all things to the new heavens and the new earth. And he will use the fire of his judgment to test the durability of that which was used to build what belongs to him. Jesus, the master inspector, will conduct a quality assurance test to see if what we've been doing is compatible with his foundation. So the question is, what will survive the fire? Well, that's what keeps me up at night. I mean, this ought to be extremely sobering to all who are engaged in vocational ministry. Because it's possible to build a church, build a church with with cheap and shoddy materials such that at the last day, you've got nothing to show for it. And people may come, people may feel helped, people may volunteer, people may join in corporate worship and serve on ministry teams or committees or teach in Sunday school classes or bring their friends or enjoy fellowship or raise funds or participate in counseling sessions or self-help groups, but still not really know the Lord. 
And if a local church is being built with large portions of charm and personality and easy oratory and positive thinking without the repeated, passionate, spirit-anointed proclamation of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, we may be winning more fans than followers of Christ. These, these verses are about durable quality. And you know, church, deep down, we really want God to test the quality of our labor. I mean, if you're in school for a degree, don't you want your degree to be worth something? Well, how will you know unless it's tested? And here's what you need to understand. This is the good news about the fire. The fire of Christ's evaluation will never, ever damage quality goods. Fire doesn't hurt that which is imperishable. In fact, if we are using gold and silver and precious stone, fire just brings out the splendor. Fire beautifies it. You see, God loves us enough to pay attention to our lives. He cares enough about us. He respects and values us enough to evaluate us. Think about it. If you're striving to become a mature, spiritually, and emotionally healthy human being, don't you want honest feedback about what will help? Wouldn't you welcome that? Only an arrogant and spiritually blind person would refuse such helpful critique. So to be clear, verses 10 through 15 are not about whether your salvation is secure. This is about building a Christian community with quality materials. Now specifically, what are we talking about when we speak of quality materials? Well, okay, here, here are some questions that we could put in the quality column, all right? So, for instance, when we study the Scriptures together on Sunday morning, or when you're studying the Scriptures in your small group gatherings, we study to learn what Paul intended to say. So, we're paying attention to the author's intent, authorial intent. Now, based on what Paul intended to say, we can think reasonably and responsibly about principles to glean from Paul's intent that will apply to our lives today. That's in the quality column. Uh, another element in the quality column would be this. Um, when we explore ways to activate biblical truth, that's quality because we don't want to just simply be hearers of the word and so deceive ourselves. We want to be doers of the word. That's in James chapter 1. Here's something else that's in the quality column. When there is conflict, can we give each other the benefit of a doubt? Can we do that? Can, can we be, go back to James chapter 1, quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry? That's, that's quality. Here's something else. Can we be at peace with the difficult passages in Scripture. Um, every now and then I um, receive communication that sounds like this. Well, I don't agree with that in the Bible, and that really troubles me, and so I don't know. 
Well, you might be surprised to learn that I don't agree with everything in the Bible. Okay? I mean, but that doesn't mean it's not true. Just because I don't agree with it doesn't mean it's not true. If you agree with everything in the Bible, you're probably not worshiping the God of the Bible. Do you think Job agreed with God? (laughs) What about Jeremiah? You deceived me, and I was deceived. See, why why do we lament? We we lament because we we don't. Something's not right, God. I don't agree with this, God. Turn, complain. Ask, trust. Here is a, here's a question that really just captures all of the quality column. And it's simply this. Does what we're doing here in the congregation, does what we're doing flow from the cross? Does it flow from the cross of Jesus Christ and Him crucified? Hmm. So in verses 14 through 17, Paul identifies three types of ministers. In verse 14, Paul says, look, there are skilled ministers who use quality materials and God will remember them. They will receive a reward if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. And I have no idea what Paul is talking about when he uses that word reward. I don't know. So we'll just have to leave it at that. But then there are other ministers who for whatever reason, they do not use quality materials. Maybe they chased after a cultural fad. Or maybe they went to a seminar that focused more on technique rather than biblical or theological truth. I don't know. But whatever it was, it did not pass muster. And what they built did not survive the fire of Christ's scrutiny. Verse 15 says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. That is, we're not talking about this particular minister's personal salvation in verse 15, but he will be saved, but only as through fire. That is, that is by the skin of his teeth. Okay. Having said this, Paul warns about a third type of leader who has neither a commitment to character or a commitment to quality material. Verses 16 and 17. Don't you know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So you see the segue? The field has become a building which has now become a temple. And Paul warns against reckless church leaders who would intentionally damage that which belongs to the Lord. Because the congregation is his field, his building, his temple. And it should surprise no one that sinister characters lurk about looking for ways to fleece the flock or strip the farmland of its nutrients for crop growth or or just to build on the cheap for personal profit or to deface the holy site of God's sanctuary. 
Look closely at verse 17. It does not refer to death by suicide. This verse refers to the justice God will take on those who vandalize his sacred building. Verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. You are that temple. Then this is what's so serious about Corinthian divisiveness. Division in the local church vandalizes the holy dwelling of God. Listen, we often wonder about, you know, if we were to move to a new community, if you, we have folks who maybe transition to different towns, where will I go to worship? And uh, sometimes we get requests about recommendations and so on and so forth. But here, what about God? Where would he worship in a particular community? First century Corinth was filled with temples. Ornate, elaborate temples. The temple of Octavia. The temple of Apollo. Aphrodite. And these temples were dedicated to various human beings. And they were visited by the Corinthians who offered gifts and sacrifices. In fact, some of these temples even had restaurants and you could dine there. And yes, some of those temples provided some sensual pleasure that ought not be discussed from this pulpit. So where's God going to go to church in Corinth? Well, these Christians worshipped in cramped house churches. Social distancing? (laughs) Not quite. There were believers sitting on the floors and on the windowsills and crowded in rooms and there's singing and there's teaching and praying and sharing communion and sharing resources. a house church full of Greeks and Hebrews and Romans and folks from all ethnicities and nationalities. There's men, women, children, married, singles, divorced, people with high-paying jobs, low-paying jobs, a gospel community of loving relationships. That's where God wants to worship. And that community, God says, you are my temple. And Paul says, some of you want to destroy that, and God's not going to let that go unaddressed. And good leadership understands the holiness of the gathering of the congregation. There there is an otherworldly beauty that is put on display to the world when God's people gather for worship. And I think that's what I miss in this season. I miss seeing us together. And I'm grateful for our, our 9 o'clock service and our 11 o'clock in-person services. I'm so grateful that you all are here this morning. So glad to worship our Father with you. I pray for the eradication of this virus so that we can all be together again. So that our community will see that the field of God is more than a field. It's a, it's a building. No, no. It's a temple. A temple indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Listen, a divided country needs to see a united church. A divided country needs to see brothers and sisters in Jesus who may have no other reason to gather other than their love for Christ. An exhausted country needs to see an energized congregation Sustained not by the outward circumstances, but by the Spirit's inner presence and dwelling. 
and a spirit-starved and insecure country needs to witness security in someone outside themselves. Security in Christ. Identity, quality, and security. That's verses 18 to 23. Paul's point is simply this in these verses. Don't be deceived by worldly wisdom. It's unstable. It won't hold. The gospel turns in things inside out. Verse 19. For the wisdom of the world is folly to God. So, so get used to the paradoxes of Christianity. If you want to gain your life, you've got to lose it. If you want to be first, you've got to be last. If you want to be the greatest, you've got to be the least. Jesus has promised us a security in the new heavens and the new earth. His promises are sure. And that he made them, we can start living as if they've already happened, which is faith. And that's why verse 21 says... All things are yours, Paul says. Here you are chasing after puny idols when God has offered you the kingdom. Let no one boast in men. All things are yours. And then look at verses 22 and 23. Don't read those verses too quickly. Here's how one scholar put it. Paul is yours. Paul is yours, the great apostle, the father of the faith, the writer of scripture. You don't belong to him, he belongs to you. You don't need his autograph on your Bible. He's yours. Apollos is yours. All of his eloquence, all of his brilliant rhetoric, all of his razor-sharp intelligence. You don't need to try to break into his inner circle. You're not his, he's yours. Cephas is yours. That's Peter, the original one, the one who heard Jesus, saw Jesus, touched Jesus, smelled Jesus, defended Jesus, denied Jesus. You're not his. He's yours. The world is yours. The whole world, the entire God-created, God-owned, God-ruled, natural, sinful, painful, beautiful, whole horrible, broken, hopeful world. It's yours. Not just part of it, but all of it. You're not victims of it. You own it. All that's happening from COVID to this national election to the sins and blessings of our nation, all of it is working for your good in Christ. Life is yours. Every breath, every heartbeat, Every day you face, every night you sleep, every movement you make, every sunny day, every cloudy morning, every relationship, every accomplishment, every emotion, every book, every text, every email, every gift, all of it, it's yours. Life follows you. It's yours. Death is yours, Paul says. Oh, death, where is your sting? He will say later in 1 Corinthians. It's on the cross. That's where. And where is your victory? It's in an empty tomb. That's where. Death is yours. Death is your servant. Your deacon. 
to make you wise and serious and fruitful. Death is your servant that will one day carry you into the arms of Jesus. And death is your servant for all eternity, reminding you that by grace through faith in Jesus, you have been spared from the lake of fire. Death is yours. <laughs> that the present is yours, Paul says in verse 22. All of it. Now, there are moments, there are moments right now. We don't have to wait until we get to heaven to, to enjoy emotional happiness in Christ. It, it's yours now. The happy moments, the giddy moments, and yes, the sad moments, the fearful moments, the brave moments, all the moments, the present is yours. You are not a slave to time or chance. You own them. They're yours. They're yours. And then finally, the future is yours. Nothing will come to you, not in five seconds or the next 50 years or 500 years. That is not your servant. You don't belong to the future. The future is yours. And in the future, you will shine like the sun in the kingdom of your father. In the future, you will be kings and priests in the new heavens and the new earth. In the future, you will judge angels. And you will have bodies like Jesus' glorious body. You'll be a pillar in the temple of God. God will be your God, and he will walk with you, his friend, his child. And you will sit with Jesus on his throne, and you will never, ever sin again. The future is yours. All things are yours. And why? Because... The temple was destroyed. Jesus said to the principalities and powers of this world, you destroyed this temple, speaking of his body, and in three days I will rebuild it. And that's exactly what happened. His cross-bearing death has secured these blessings for us. And as a result, you are Christ's. You're Christ's body, Christ's bride, Christ's slave. Christ's sibling, Christ's fellow heir, and Christ is God's. All that the Father is or can be or can do for one like himself, he is and does for Christ. And because you are Christ's, all that the Father is or can be or can do for a creature, he is and does for you because you belong to him. So Paul says, all things are yours. I'm telling you, these verses get me through the day. Identity, quality, and security. This is what keeps us united in Christ. Church family, will you pray for me that I will lead according to these verses? Amen.